I think like the number one retention tool right now, listen up. I'm Pencil Wolf. paper. It's Welcome not that to another complicated. Episode it's Caesar's Legalization. Because show here's what I'll tell you. If Network. I feel recognized, if I feel seen, if I feel valued, if I feel like I'm contributing and making a difference if at my company, this is just $20, another podcast, more think again. is not going to get me. We are the heart and soul of crucial conversations focused on helping you reimagine your tomorrow and exploring the convergence of technology, people, and work. On this episode, you are going to hear from diversity, equity, and inclusion expert, Mita Malik, as we discuss gaslighting in the workplace. Mita not only studies this area, but she also has experienced gaslighting in the workplace in her own life as an American Indian woman. Those experiences forged the mission she's on now to create healthy, vibrant, inclusive cultures. Ira, I know you've mentioned before on previous episodes the comedy styles of Jeff Foxworthy, and in particular his sketches where he would say, you might be a redneck if, so let's play that today in terms of gaslighting. You might be a gaslighter if you're a highly manipulative personality. You might be a gaslighter if you have a low sense of self-worth or self-esteem. You might be a gaslighter if you constantly point out other people's flaws. You might be a gaslighter if you don't respond well when you don't have power. And you might be a gaslighter if you have narcissistic tendencies. And let's be honest, with a, yet again, record high number of people quitting their jobs and citing a lack of respect as the top reason for leaving just last month, I can't help but wonder if we should have played Twisted Sisters classic rocket, we're not going to take it. Jason, I'm a baby boomer. You're a Gen X. We grew up in different times, but in 1976... There was an enormously popular movie that people couldn't stop talking about. If you ask any baby boomer about the quote, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore, they'll immediately talk about Howard Beale and the movie Network, which later became even a Broadway show. The movie was so popular, it also swept the Oscars. It got Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Best Actress. And Howard Beale uh, was in the media. I won't go into the whole story. You can look it up. Uh, but the reality is, is Howard Beale just had it. And I just want to read a little bit of a quote that he said when he went on a rant. We know the air is unfit to breathe. Our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us today that we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy. So we don't go out anymore. We sit in our house. Slowly, the world we are living in is getting smaller. And all we say is, please, at least let us alone in our living rooms. Let us have my toaster and my TV and my steel belted radials. And I won't say anything, just let us alone. Well, I'm not gonna leave you alone anymore. I want you to get mad. He goes on to talk about the deep depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street, among other things which could easily have been today. And that was 45 years ago. That's absolutely crazy, Ira. And the part you said, the line of as if this is the way things are supposed to be. I mean, I think that's the question we've all got to be asking is why do we still have so many workplaces that just are toxic? especially towards women and people of color. And that's what we're going to unpack today with Mita Malik so that she can help us understand how do we help fix this problem that we clearly have in this country. 
But before we bring Mita on, just a little bit about her. She is a corporate change maker with a track record of transforming businesses. She's currently the head of inclusion, equity, and impact at Carta. She was formerly the head of inclusion and cross-cultural marketing at Unilever. She's a LinkedIn top voice, a contributor for Entrepreneur and Harvard Business Review. And her writing has been published in Adweek, Fast Company, and Business Insider. And here recently, she's also the co-host of the Brown Table Talk podcast, part of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. And on the podcast, Mita and her co-host, Dee Marshall, share stories and tips on how to help women of color win at work and also advice for allies on how they can show up. So without further ado, let's welcome Mita Malik to the Geek, Skeezers, and Googleization Show. Thank you so much for having me. What an introduction. It's awesome to have you, Mita. We're very excited, and we know our listeners are too. And so to kick things off, why don't we we start here? What got you interested in these areas? Well, what got me interested in, in what I do now is starts at the very beginning. I'm the proud daughter of Indian immigrant parents. My younger brother and I were born and raised here in the United States outside of Boston. And I was always the funny-looking, dark-skinned girl with a long, funny-looking braid whose parents spoke funny English until it wasn't funny anymore. And I was bullied a lot by my peers growing up. And what I didn't realize is that those bullies from the schoolyards and classrooms would follow me into corporate America. I know that our listeners are going to be touched by a lot of the stories you shared today because those personal experiences have shaped your leadership style and the work that you're doing now. But before we get into some of that, Mita, maybe a question many of our listeners are asking themselves is, I've heard this term gaslighting a whole lot. What the heck is it, though? Gaslighting was termed in the 1970s, and it was really based on personal relationships. So I think, I believe when I started talking about it happening in the workplace, people were really sort of taken aback. And there was this like light bulb moment where individuals said, oh, oh, wow, like that's what I've been experiencing. And gaslighting, if we were all in a live studio together and Jason, I was sitting next to you and I just slapped you across the face And you looked at me and you said, why did you just slap me across the face? And I said, I didn't slap you across the face. And so I use that as a very clear example to say it is, it's a form of psychological abuse. It is a form of denying, minimizing experiences. It's manipulating situations. It's all the things you said in the beginning. People will do anything they can when you're being gaslit to rock your sense of reality and what you believe to be true. So Mita, how do we differentiate between people that are just, I guess, ignoring you, deflecting, passing the blame off versus gaslighting? It seems that people are using those terms interchangeably. I can only speak about it from my perspective as someone who's been the target of gaslighting, which is exactly what I said with a former manager who would say, of course, you can come and present your recommendation to the CEO. I'm going to put that calendar invite. I'm going to send it to you. And you're waiting and waiting, never shows up. You're texting him. You're like, am I supposed to be presenting? Only for people to say, oh, I heard you were on vacation. You couldn't present. And then for that person then to say, oh, I never said you could come to the meeting. So I, I mean, I can only speak to it from my experience. And I think those who have been the targets of gaslighting would tell you it's becomes a very clear pattern over time. And I think you're right, Ira, people can misuse the term. But I think if you really look at what it means. There's very clear examples of how it shows up. 
I just was on an, an interview this morning and it, it was about a government agency and they're looking to really revamp where things are going. Obviously, a lot of these things have been brought to attention now that companies care about it. But we were on, uh, we had this conversation earlier and the person I was speaking to said, I was really shocked when I walked through the, the corridors and I realized the diversity that they had, that there were men and women and young and old and people of different color. And I had to stop and think about what's next after that. How quickly can people in that path accelerate into the next role? How quickly were the women promoted? How quickly were people of color promoted? So I assume that's all fitting into the gaslighting, into what we're talking about. You can look on the surface and, and people are treated equally, but behind the scenes, they're not. I think to your point, like I like always say, diversity of representation matters and what you measure gets done. And at the same time, I'm not a quota. I'm not a diversity hire. I earn this seat. When people who are listening right now to the podcast, if you've ever used that language, it's a moment to educate yourself. I earn this seat. I'm not a diversity hire. But what I would say is to your point, Ira, you can work on changing the demographics of your workforce. But at the same time, if you're not upskilling your leaders on how to be culturally competent, there's a miss. So if you're not talking about or understanding Black Lives Matter, and yet you have brought in Black talent, if you're not understanding what's happening right now in our country with anti-Asian hate crime and the alarming rate in which it's increasing, right? So just to be aware of what's happening to different communities is so important because when those communities are reflected in our workforce and when we can't show up for them, exactly what Jason said in the beginning, the statistics of the great resignation, or as I coined in Fast Company, the great awakening is really alarming. And as you were sharing both of you song lyrics, it's like, you know, we're not going to take it anymore. You wake up one morning and realize, why have I been in this toxic work environment for four years? Why have I allowed myself to shrink to places that no longer fit me? What are some other examples of gaslighting? Because there are probably managers out there that might just not be aware. I mean, it really may be almost this unconscious habit, or this is the world that they grew up in in the past, that they may not recognize some of the things that they do, some of the behaviors or some of the things that they say that might, in fact, be gaslighting. So I want to go back to the invitation to the meeting example, because it's the, the reason why it's gaslighting, it's the lying and manipulation to say, oh, of course, you're going to come present. And then actually, that was never the intention. So there's a difference there. And I think with what Jason said in the beginning, all of the different ways in which the personality of a gaslighter, I think it's like, I like to live my life thinking 99% of people have good intentions. And those 1% don't, and they deserve to be in the headlines, and they deserve to seek redemption. But most people are not operating in this way and need to be educated. But I do think with gaslighting, there's a pattern of this behavior. So another example would be the former manager who would say to me, you're never going to get promoted here. You're incompetent. Nobody's going to ever hire you. But then to Jason, who's a peer saying, oh, isn't Mita great? She's VP material. Or saying to me, you know what? We don't have any money to send you to this leadership program. It's not happening this year. But then you find out every single director in the group is going, but you, right? So it's this, again, it is the lying and manipulating you and then sharing another version of the truth with someone else. And so there's many different examples, but that just shows up over and over again. Yeah, so in Mita, are there certain phrases sometimes that, that you have heard or that we've read about in research literature? There might be common like microaggressions or phrases 
that should be kind of a red flag to people of, hey, you're using some language that can come across as bullying or gaslighting type behavior. I think it goes back to the behaviors we talked about at the beginning, which is this, you know, feeling threatened, having low self-esteem. You don't know what you're talking about. That's not true. That didn't happen. Oh, you're being defensive. Oh, you're making a big deal about it. Stop being sensitive. So I think any time, any sort of language where the leader will not own their behavior and is deflecting it, and anything where you see the person you're trying to minimize or negate the person's experience, those are all red flags. That's so interesting because as you hear that, it's not just that that intention of, of saying that you're just too sensitive, but it's then other people tolerating that person and supporting them essentially bailing him out. Well, he didn't really mean that, which goes back to the solution always becomes, let's have some training. Let's bring everybody in. We're going to do a day of training on leadership or DEI or unconscious bias. And then everybody's fixed because we checked that box off and now it's all better. You had a really, really interesting quote that there's $370 billion spent each year on leadership training. Part of that's got to be DEI. And I'm sure there's some good stuff in there. But it's long been known that the effectiveness of leadership training of almost any similar training like that is it literally is just we checked off the box and we spent the money and look how much we invest. But there, there's not a lot of, of things that were affected. And companies still have this toxic culture. They're still gaslighting. They're still discriminating. Why is that? I think in my case, the former toxic gaslighting harasser boss that I left, when I left, during that time period, five women of color left, including myself, within like nine days have resigned. And so part of it is also like, you know, I feel like we have with a number two pencil on a piece of notebook paper, we're doing exit interviews. Like, where do those go? What do we do with that data? If Jason is leaving and I do an exit interview with him and he's honest and shares themes, do I go back to Ira? Is Ira held accountable if Jason left Ira's team? Is that part of his performance review rating and part of assessing Ira as a leader? No. And it's so interesting to me because we treat customer reviews like gold. Imagine if I like went on Amazon or I went somewhere and gave your product a crappy review. Most people would be all over that and they would be going to fix it. Why don't we treat our exit reviews with that same level of respect when people are walking out the door and telling us? I think that's one thing. I think a second thing too is when you talk about the characteristics of a gaslighter, a gaslighter boss, they are really skilled at managing up in a lot of cases, and that's how they stay. So this idea of 360 reviews and this idea of making sure that you are actually, if it's me, you're getting feedback throughout my team and my org, and I'm getting it back anonymously, and I'm being coached through it. And I'm not talking about a 30-day coaching plan, but somebody who's like observing me in meetings, who's giving me the feedback. And, you know, in some cases, I honestly think people need therapy. Like they should actually go and work on fixing themselves so they can come back and show up as a better leader. And I wish more organizations would think about that because a lot of the things that need to be fixed is not going to be fixed through like a 90-day coaching plan. It's just not. It's so interesting to me because last week, Jason and I were presenting for the first time together. And one of the questions I had asked was how many companies hold managers accountable for attrition, for resignations. And you said you and four or five other people left within a short period of time. And 
it got down to, well, our, our company doesn't hold them accountable or nobody, or they're not even measuring that. They don't measure attrition by manager. And it's so obvious, like, do you have a retention problem or do you have a manager problem? I hope that people listening are taking notes on that one, because I really hope when you think about this great resignation, great awakening, great reshuffle, what are you trying to fix that people are leaving? You're sort of scrambling to be like, oh, my God, why did Jason leave and Ira leave and me to leave? What's happening? And it's like the answers are all here. You just don't want to see them. Well, I know you talk a lot about community, creating that belongingness. And we had a great conversation with a mutual friend of ours. The podcast just came out uh, just recently. And we were with uh, Nikki Llewellyn. And, we, and during that conversation, it really, it hit me. And we, I talk about it all the time because companies are building culture. But what they really want to do is build community. Culture is just this thing. It's this abstract thing. And we measure it and we can put posters on the wall. But you can't measure how people feel about your culture. And, you know, it's, it's like you don't move into a neighborhood. You don't want to know what the culture is. You want to know what's it feel like to belong there? What are the schools like? What are the neighbors like? It's about community. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know that's that's a huge part of what you're trying to create is a belongingness as, as a community, that inclusivity. I think like the number one retention tool right now, listen up, pencil, paper. It's not that complicated. It's community. It's belonging. Because here's what I'll tell you. If I feel recognized, if I feel seen, if I feel valued, if I feel like I'm contributing and making a difference at my company, $20,000 more is not going to get me to move. That feeling is priceless. I can think about teams that I led, teams that I were part of, double digit decline, like horrible business situations, and some of my best memories and people who I'm still in touch with. Because I felt like we had a common cause, a mission purpose, and I felt like I had a seat at the table. People cared what I had to say, and people found my input to be of value. And so that's where I think managers have lost the plot. I'm not staying for a meditation app, a ping pong table, kind snack bars, or whatever else fancy snack bar you're going to sell me. Like I'm not staying for that. Like No one's staying for that. People are staying, as you're saying, I refer community, connection, belonging. And meet it, you're the head of inclusion and equity at Carta. Are there some specific examples you can share with our audience of strategies and tactics that have helped build that community in a successful way at Carta? I think one of the things, especially as we're in this new chapter of ways of working, I think the jury's still out. Is it hybrid? Is it full-time back? Is it fully remote? I think companies are experimenting and trying to figure out. You know, another big reason I'm sure this won't surprise you why people leave. People leave when they feel like they don't have friends at work. They'll also stay when they feel like they have friends at work. So when you're onboarding new people, listen, my full-time job is not to be a matchmaker, but if Jason is starting on my team, I might say, hey, Jason, I have like a few people you should meet. And so just to sort of curate conversations and maybe Jason meets Ira and they hit it off and they start to slowly continue to meet once a month or they go out for drinks or dinner. But I think making those connections as a leader, I think that's important to let people know, to reach out. And then also, I think time goes by really quickly. So if you really hit it off with someone, I've done this. I started this big new job remotely, gosh, October 2020. And so what did I do? I, If I hit it off with Jason, I'd say, hey, do you mind if I put time on your calendar next month and the month after? So we would just start to build a relationship and have reoccurring time on the calendar. My other tip is... If you're in these large meetings and you see someone presenting and you like something someone said, like Ira presented, you know, I might 
send him an email or Slack afterwards saying, what you said really resonated for me. Would you mind if I just put 20 minutes on your calendar? And and he'll likely be flattered that I sent him that note because <laughs> we're human and we'll say, yeah, I'd love to meet you. And so those are ways to just build community and connection. And And the last thing is, there's that famous quote, watch out when you're most passionate and engaged employees go quiet. Watch out. What is happening that all of a sudden I was passionate, I was engaged, and I went quiet? What has led me to feel like I don't belong here anymore? And that's our job as leaders to figure that out. Absolutely. And the recommendation you gave earlier, too, of trying to uncover those things, not only in exit interviews, at that point, you know, too late, they're piecing out on you. But gathering that stuff in a stay interview where minimally one time per year, you're trying to get that honest, candid feedback from your people about what are the reasons why they would consider staying or why they'd consider leaving and getting that out on the table is the only way that you're going to be able to address those things. And again, I think your recommendation with the performance management too is absolutely huge. Making sure that they're accountable if they're having several people that are piecing out from their department. If you're a manager, there needs to be some accountability there and then coaching and some measures put in place to help them improve in that area. Because it's certainly not only affecting the culture, but it's affecting the business's ability to deliver on value for stakeholders too. Absolutely. The other thing I would add is like one-on-one meetings are the most underutilized tools. And like, if you're canceling one-on-ones, put them back on. You know, when you have a one-on-one and you're like, oh, I don't need to meet with me tomorrow. No, check in without a list because you don't need that stay interview once a year. Sometimes that's even too late. You need to have a pulse on your talent. Because if you have a pulse on people, you'll just have a sense, right, Jason, if I work for you and something has changed, you'll have a sense. And if we have a good enough relationship, I'll share with you what's changing for me at work and why I might not be as happy as I was before. That's so true, Mita. And I'm glad you brought that up because with remote work, of all the positives that have come with it, there have been some unintended consequences that have made for a tough transition for some folks. And one of them is the data has shown around six hours per week less of interaction time between employees and their direct managers. And so what I just want to reinforce to our listeners that you just shared there is if you're a manager thinking, hey, I can just check out this week, this person's fine, don't do it. Keep it on the calendar is what Mita is saying. It's so important to continue to build those connections and check in on them, even if there's not anything of significance to talk about just continuing to nurture those bonds and communicating and showing that you're there for them is critically important in these times. Silence is not golden, right? (laughs) In this case, and ignorance is not bliss. It was a study that was just published in, in Sloan MIT, and it talked about the causes of attrition. And you mentioned this before, it's not about compensation, but essentially a toxic corporate culture had 10 times the impact of compensation. But so did even recognizing employee performance and reaching out to somebody, having that one-on-one, little things that don't cost money, they don't cost time. And you can't say, oh, I wrote that down and I'll let them know in 12 months when we do the review again. The communication has to be instant. And I know for years, I'm a recovering millennial basher, but you know, 20 years ago, it was like, oh, all they want is feedback. You know, Every minute, they need to know how they're doing. It, what do I have to tell them how they're doing every day. And the reality is it doesn't have to be formal. You don't have to have a meeting, but it could just be a recognition that they were there 
and reverse, I guess, is true, too. If somebody's really quiet during a meeting, maybe it's not embarrassing them, holding accountable, not on screen. It's like, oh, we haven't heard from you today, Mita. Maybe it's afterwards reaching out and go, hey, you were unusually quiet today. Absolutely. And also just to really honor the diversity of work styles, extroverts, introverts, ambiverts, right? And so not everyone shows up in the same way. And so just to be attuned to that, I might not be the loudest voice in the room. Doesn't mean I'm not engaged or I don't care. But to your point, you might want to check in with me afterwards if I've suddenly become unusually quiet. We've talked about this before. It's actually how I started my business and, and you know, 26 years ago. But even before that, did a lot with behavioral styles, trying to understand myself and other people. And, you know, we used the disc profile. And a lot of people say, well, I just like things to be right. I like things to be perfect. And they become the nitpicker. And it goes, well, that I hold people to a higher standard and I want to pull them up. And their intentions are good. But eventually, those turned into almost, I, I guess, microaggressions or they, they turned into this gaslighting because it, it, you may not be discriminating against any individual. You, you do it universally. You hold everybody to a higher standard. But it could be received differently. Certain people respect that and other people who may not have a natural high level of confidence is just beaten down. Recently, I read something in the press and I, I won't remember from what outlet, but it's basically we hire smart people to do a job. When they get there, don't tell them how to do their job. Let them do their job and coach and advise them. But you hired me because I had a certain expertise, a certain talent set. So let me do my job and then coach me along the way. Don't do my job for me. So that raises another interesting aspect is there's so many organizations are hiring for culture fit, which again goes into the community. I don't know how you hire for community yeah. fit because that's, that's going to be an active program of building relationships. Have you seen in, in your experiences, do companies tend to get really good at hiring people to perpetuate a toxic culture? Well, I think culture fit can be a dangerous word and be coded language. I spoke about this and wrote about this recently, not too long ago, an entrepreneur. I really encourage people to go back to the job description, skills fit, culture ad is a new sort of term that's been out there, but also what are your values? So for instance, one of our values at Carta is that we're relentless and that we are kind. So thinking about those things and how do you ask those questions? When's the last time you showed up with kindness for someone? That might be a really surprising question in an interview. But if that's a value you hold really close to your heart at your company, ask that question. The thing about culture fit is when people say things to me like, oh, I don't know if I could have a beer with Mita, or I don't know what it would be like to be stranded with her in an airport if we were snowed in heading for a work trip? Would I trust her to watch my children? You know, all these sort of questions are like, what? You're like, what does that have to do with the job? Because it goes back to the fact that it's human nature. I like people like me. I like people who look like me, act like me, think like me. And so we tend to self-segregate. And so to really start breaking through that, like if meat is not a culture fit, what does it actually mean? Let's like break through that. It's because you might perceive something that's different about me that you haven't seen that, let's be honest, makes you uncomfortable. So how do you break past that and really ask, like, what do you mean by culture fit? And if I can coach a leader and drill down, it's usually not based on experience or skill fit. It's something else. Amita, I want to take this conversation down the road of kind of talking about this blurred line that we have in terms of what becomes employment law, in terms of what businesses are required to do in terms of the right thing, and then what are the things that are left in their purview that they should do? 
it, just a little context for this. A few months ago, I wrote an article about how I think there should be an OSHA for mental health in the workplace. That because of OSHA, we finally got businesses to step up and do what they should have done to keep workers physically safe on the job. It feels like many times in business, we end up having the same conversations of the things we should do. And unfortunately, many times it doesn't move over to the other side of the line of, okay, we're doing it now. Certainly there are a good number of businesses that are improving in that area, but kind of where do you think that line is of when it comes to mental injury, when it comes to gaslighting, when it comes to mental health in the workplace, when it comes to culture, do you think that we should have more government support, employment law, things that will force the hand of more businesses to step up to the plate and do what's right for their people? Based on what I've experienced, and I know what many of my friends who are women of color have experienced, I would say yes. And sometimes you need rules and regulation to be a catalyst for change. If we look at what's happening when it comes to board and diversity of who's in the boardroom and some of the regulation and things that have been passed, some people might say, well, that's for quotas. And I might say, well, no, it's actually forcing people to have a diverse slate, right person for the right role, but make sure we have a diverse slate to start with. And so I think, Jason, that's a super important point. And I think at some point we do need to see more regulation. Some of the conversations we're having, gaslighting is really hard because a lot of it happens one-on-one. Gaslighters who are leaders are really adept at isolating people. And usually where there's smoke, there's fire, there's a pattern. But it wasn't until after I left, I found out this was happening to other people. We just didn't talk about it because we felt isolated and lonely. So it's, it's tough. It's tough to regulate something like that when it's happening one-on-one in you know closed doors or in virtual rooms. And just a few weeks ago, I can't remember the episode, Ira, but we, we were kind of talking about that. And I think the latest numbers were, it's, it's, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mita, but I think it's like less than 4% of CEOs of the Fortune 500 companies are women or people of color, a really low number. And it just feels like we're going to need some more teeth, I think, in order to get this ship going in the right direction. So thank you for sharing your insights and opinions and perspectives on that too. Yeah, I I think the number is around 7%. I think it's been improved dramatically, but I think there's one person of color within that hundred or so. So here goes, here's our lightning round. We're going to learn a little bit more about Mita. If you won the lottery tomorrow, what would you do? I would start a nonprofit supporting girls in their education. Both my grandmothers, my dad's mother was married when she was 12 years old, and my mother's mother was married when she was 10 years old. And they were pretty remarkable women, and that's happening still in the world today. So that's what I would like to use my lottery money for, educate girls. Growing up, I mean, you obviously had some inspirational women in your lives. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I thought I was going to be a teacher, which isn't actually far off from what I'm doing today. But I actually had a secret dream to be an executive producer for a boy band. I don't know why, but I thought that would be a cool job to have. Probably inspired by the, I don't know, in sync days. I was going to ask you, is there a particular boy band in particular that kind of sparked this interest? That was really interesting, right? Even the whole marketing of boy bands. Now that's a different podcast for a different time, but yeah. (laughs) We went back and we had an opportunity to uh, meet some of your classmates growing up. Would they be surprised at what you're doing now? Absolutely. Probably that I'm so vocal that I'm using my voice. I was painfully shy growing up. I think that's going to be our theme for the show. Every time we ask that question, everybody says, oh, yeah, I was like a shy kid. I was an introvert. I never talked, (laughs) never was outspoken. 
I had trouble making eye contact. I'll be honest. Like it wasn't even, it was not introverted. It was like, I didn't want to be seen. We're going to have to have you back for, for another show to find out how that transformation happened or what spurred that on. When did you say I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What's your favorite book? Okay. So here's my secret. I stopped reading during the pandemic because I was raising my children and trying to keep a job. So my last book I read was Harry Potter, Sorcerer's Stone, my son. What's your word of the year? Manifest. Why do you select manifest? Because I think that put out to the universe the things that you want to happen. I wanted to be on more podcasts and here I am on your podcast. So just to put out the things that you want to happen and they happen. So people can do a Google search for you, Mita Malik, and find you on uh, Entrepreneur and uh, Fast Company and Harvard Business Review, lots of places. Where else can they find you if they want to reach out to you directly? What's the best way to do that? My preferred social media platform, which isn't a surprise to you, is LinkedIn, although my husband thinks I waste a lot of time on it. But I love it. So you could find me on LinkedIn. And that's where I love to connect with people. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram. And I started a TikTok channel, but I can't keep up with it because doing the videos is a lot of work. And the name of your podcast, which is part of the LinkedIn network. Thank you, Jason. You're such a great ally. Yes, thank you. Brown Table Talk Podcast, Apple, Spotify. Please uh, download and listen. Mita, it's great to meet. What a wonderful conversation. Hopefully we changed a few lives. I know you, you said a few times, hey, write this down. And, and I was already ahead of you. I was writing a lot of things down and we'll have to listen again to, to pull these out, but really appreciate it. What a, a powerful conversation and uh, one that we're going to continue and hopefully we'll be able to continue on here, but certainly would love to have you back and get some updates down the road. Well, thank you for the impact you're making with your podcast. And I appreciate being here today. What an amazing topic and conversation with someone who's making a difference in this area. And I was serious. I'd love to have to go back and find out what was that transformation? What finally clicked on going from shy and introverted, lacking confidence to, you know, being bold enough to, to speak out. And, you know, what was that um, mad as hell and can't take it anymore moment? And it seems that that may be a good question that we should be asking a lot of people these days. And and that's going to be what it takes. It's going to take a lot of courage. What was one or two things that Mita had said that sparked an idea for you? What was your takeaway? She kind of alluded to this, some unlearning. And we talk about it a lot in terms of adaptability, that a lot of people, the context that they may have grown up in, those things, they may not mean any harm sometimes, but it still is harmful nonetheless. And just claiming that it's just the way that you are isn't helpful. And and so, you know, I've had to do this myself. I grew up in rural Indiana. I had a graduating class of 50. Literally every single student and every single adult in my public school was white. Every single one was Caucasian. And so when I went to college down in Nashville, I finally started to be around people who weren't from the same ethnic background. And it was really good for me to stretch and grow. But I think. There's a lot of unlearning you have to do in terms of words or phrases that you may use that you think are harmless in the environment or the context that you grew up in, but there's still a responsibility to adapt and grow and unlearn those things if they are harmful to other people and make sure that you are trying to think of others and be respectful of them. I think those were some of the big takeaways I took from Mita's conversation today. We had 260 students in my class, uh, but all white. Every school we played was all white. 
And I remember finally my our senior year, we played uh, one school and it was actually a, a predominantly black school from Philadelphia in football and the tension. And they had the state police there to guard it. And again, it, it's certainly things we took for granted, words we use, impressions we had that dramatically changed that. And then again, went to you know college and professional school in the city. Again, very different dynamics. But there's people who have never left that bubble. And there's still people out there. We just look at the politics, which we don't want to go down that road. I think the one thing that just shocks the crap out of me is that companies are doing a lot of right things and they're training, uh, even from leadership development, you know, again, $370 billion spent on leadership development, but they're not holding people accountable. It's not a metric they even measure. It's almost how many people have moved into new positions? How many people did we promote? But how effective are those people? And, you know, something is as important as how do we stem attrition? How do we prevent people from leaving so quickly? What are we doing wrong? And you say, are you measuring your managers? Uh, oh, no, <laughs> we couldn't do that. You know, he's been here for 20 years. And sadly, Ira, to tie into that, I've heard verbatim from certain leaders in some industries where they just view attrition as the cost of doing business. Yeah, well, I think they're learning quickly. I think at one point they're just, they don't have that leeway anymore. I'm Jason Cochran. You've been listening to Geeks, Geezers, Googleization. Be sure to follow us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And I'm Ira Wolf. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. Until next time, don't let the shift hit your plans. <laughs>